Christchurch, New Malden. Sunday the 19th of February 2023, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba. Well, I'm sure a lot of you have been there. That moment where you bring that special person home for the very first time to meet the parents. Now, that is the title of a well-known film, isn't it? Here it is. But that scene where someone takes a boyfriend or a girlfriend home for the very first time, it actually occurs in a lot of films. It even occurs in quite a few adverts. Here's one of the latest ones, uh, that advert that you might recognise from TV, where that poor guy is meeting his potential in-laws, really, and he's terrified. The reason why that scene occurs so often in films is because it's got so much potential for tension and therefore comedy. And funny things can definitely happen. I mean, I think back to my own life. My mum and dad had known Katie, my, my wife, her parents, for some 30 years. The parents had known each other for a good deal of time, partly because our dads were both vicars and they'd moved in similar circles. But my parents hadn't met Katie before, and so I was pretty taken aback when my mum's very first words to her were, gosh, don't you look like your mother? Which isn't necessarily the best thing to say to someone, is it? I've got an aunt, my mother's younger sister, who married a vicar. In my family, you either become a vicar or you marry one. It's the rules. And basically, the first time that she met his parents, who were quite posh in many ways, I hope uh, this uh, sermon isn't picked up by people who should be listening to it, but basically, she went home to meet his parents, who were quite posh, and she didn't understand a single word they were talking about. So before she next met them, she bought a copy of The Times every single week, for a, you know, every day for a week, so that she could say a few intelligent things in conversation. Relationships come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? And of course, sometimes people end up making a fantastic marriage after a disastrous start in terms of meeting the in-laws. But it's still pretty common to hear people use that expression, oh, they're the sort of person that you really could take home to meet your mum. Why have I started that way this morning? Well, for the people of Israel, that was very definitely not true with the women that we're thinking about this morning. Apart from Mary, there are four female names in that family tree that I read to us earlier, and here they are. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And the very point of their inclusion within this family tree is that none of them, frankly, were women that a respectable Jewish boy would want to take home to meet mum and dad. Now, I've spoken on this passage before. And I've emphasised its role right at the start of Mark's Gospel and indeed right at the start of the New Testament in showing how Jesus was descended from two pretty crucial characters. From Abraham, the one to whom God made that promise that he'd one day become a great nation and that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. So it's emphasising Jesus' descent from Abraham but also Jesus' descent from another very important character, King David. The king whom God promised would always have a descendant on the throne of Israel and whose son would rule the world forever. The crucial point being made here is that Jesus Christ came to be the fulfilment of this family that were bearing God's covenant promises. And it's not just shown by the names, it's actually shown by the numbers as well. Now, as I read that second passage, particularly after the excitement of the first one read by Pamela, you might have zoned out 
during that endless list of names. But if you manage to stay awake, you'll have seen or heard this at the end of them all. At the end of all those names, we saw this bit. The text said, thus there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. So what's going on there? What's that bit all about? Well, within the world of ancient Israel, numbers had a symbolism that we don't tend to give them today. And within this symbolism, seven was the number of completeness, and that meant that 49, seven times seven, was the number of total completeness or fulfillment. And what that family tree is therefore saying is that the coming of Jesus represented the start of the final chapter in God's purposes. Six lots of seven had already passed, and Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham and the son of David, represented and represents the beginning of the last set of seven. The start of the final act in God's purposes for this world. But as I say, in the middle of all of those names, the names of the men through whom Jesus' line were traced, it's overwhelmingly a list of male names, isn't it? We get these four women. So what do we know about them? Well, we've heard the story of Tamar already, but I'll cover that first. What do we know about Tamar? Well, the family tree first covers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, familiar names. And then it gets to Judah, whom we're told had two sons, Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, to find out about this, we have to do what we've already done, which is go back to Genesis chapter 38. Now, that's a passage which interrupts the more famous story of Joseph. Joseph in a technical dream coat, Joseph sold into slavery, Joseph who has the dreams, all that that most of us will know about. It's an uninterrupted narrative other than this particular interruption early on in Genesis 38, where we have this pretty unpleasant little story, frankly, about Joseph's brother, Judah. Judah had a son called Ur, who married, as we heard, a woman called Tamar, but then died before having children, meaning that his brother Onan was married to Tamar to continue the family line. But Onan doesn't want to do that, and he promptly dies as well, doesn't he? Meaning that Judah is pretty reluctant for Tamar to marry his third son, Shelah. And so to ensure that the family line continues, Tamar disguises, as we heard, herself as a prostitute, and she gets herself pregnant by Judah himself. Now, Judah doesn't know that the woman he had sex with was his daughter-in-law, and so as we heard, when he finds out that Tamar's pregnant, he says that she should be burnt to death. But having discovered his own role in her pregnancy, Judah declares these words. She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. Twins called Perez and Zerah are the result, and the covenant line, and this is the important point, the covenant line that began with Abraham was able to continue through Perez on its way to Jesus. That's not the most edifying stuff, is it? So let's see if it gets a bit better. Hopefully it will with our second person in this list. The second person in the family tree is, or the second woman, is Rahab. She's mentioned a couple of verses after Tamar as the mother of Boaz, whose father was Salmon. 
Now this time, rather than Genesis, it's the book of Joshua where we need to go to find out about Rahab. And there we discover that she was a Canaanite prostitute in the city of Jericho. Rahab gave shelter to the Israelite spies who came into that city before it was captured. And the deal that Rahab struck with them was that basically she and her family would be spared when the rest of the city was destroyed. Now, we don't hear anything in the book of Joshua about Rahab's marriage, and perhaps that's because there wasn't one. As Rahab produced a son called Boaz by Salmon, the great-great-great-grandson of Perez, who we've already heard about, and it allows, once again, that covenant line of Abraham to continue on its way towards fulfilment in Jesus it's all been pretty unsavoury so far this morning, hasn't it? Perhaps we should have given a warning. Perhaps I should have emailed everyone uh, to warn them that this is what church would be like this morning. Perhaps it's about to get better with the third of the women because we're on to Ruth. Ruth, the mother of Obed by his father Boaz. Now, many of us here will already know the story of Ruth already. And we'll know that it's a story about the wonderful faithfulness that Ruth showed to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi's husband has died, her two sons, one of whom was married to Ruth, have died, and Ruth could have just left and founded a new life as the other sister-in-law, uh, Orpah, did, but she doesn't. She stays with Naomi. So Tamar and Rahab, they may have been not the sort of women that you want to take home to your parents, but surely Ruth was different. Well, perhaps, but like Rahab, Ruth wasn't an Israelite. In her case, she came from Moab. Moab was a tribe that were terrible enemies of Israel and oppressors of them. And what's more, there are one or two bits of the story of Ruth that can look a little bit like that story of Tamar. You see, Naomi's instruction, Ruth makes her way in the story to the field where Boaz is sleeping, and she uncovers his feet. Now, that can be a euphemism. We're not totally sure it is. But uh, Naomi says he will tell you what to do. Now, this is the middle of the night, and she's sort of partially uncovering him. So there's enough there for us to make us think, hmm, what exactly is going on in this story? We're not totally sure is the answer. Now, nothing dodgy actually happens, but it is interesting that when Boaz announces later on that he'll marry Ruth, the elders in Bethlehem recall a story from the earlier part of God's dealings with Israel. And look what the story is. May your family be, they say, like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So it's interesting that they reference back to that earlier story. Ruth and Boaz are married, and the result is a son called Obed, through whom, once again, the covenant family of Abraham continues on its way towards Jesus. And Obed becomes the grandfather of King David. And that leads us to our final woman in the family tree, the mother of King Solomon by King David, who's not even given a name, but whom we're told had been Uriah's wife. Now that's significant for two reasons. First of all, because like Rahab and Ruth, Uriah wasn't an Israelite. He was a Gentile, in his case a Hittite. But secondly, because this story really represents the most terrible episode 
in the whole story of King David from 2 Samuel chapter 11. When we read this infamous story, we hear of King David being out on his palace roof one evening, seeing a woman called Bathsheba bathing. He summons her, he gets her pregnant because he can, because he's the king, and when he couldn't cover it up, he has her husband Uriah the Hittite murdered. A faithful follower of David is just disposed of. Now David had plenty of other wives, and he had other sons. And we might think, and I remember as a teenager reading this story and thinking, why isn't, why isn't one of them? Surely they're more suitable to be the ones through whom David's line continues, but that's not the case. It's through this son Solomon, the first son uh, of Bathsheba, after she gets pregnant by David dies, but then she has another son Solomon. And it's through this son Solomon that David had by the wife of Uriah the Hittite, this woman that he stole from this guy and just disposed of so appallingly, it's through that son that this family line that began with Abraham continues on its way to Jesus. So, what do we make of all this? Perhaps we're sitting there shocked that all this stuff is in the Bible. Just four women, other than Mary, who I'll say a bit about later, mentioned in this family tree or genealogy, to give it its proper name, and all four of them represent parts of the covenant story of Israel that are less than respectable, to put it mildly. Now, that doesn't mean, I hasten to add, that these women deserve our criticism or condemnation. It's the men in the stories that, in the words of Judah to Tamar, who are much less righteous, with these women being exploited, certainly being very limited in their agency, and yet who, in several cases, take decisions that turn out to be crucial ones in the ongoing path of the plan of God to fulfill his covenant promises through the coming of Jesus. But what do we learn from the inclusion of these four women within this pretty vital family tree, this pretty vital genealogy that Matthew chooses to start the account of his gospel and the Holy Spirit chooses to start the whole of the New Testament? What do we learn from the inclusion of these four women. Well, the first point is this. God works his purpose through the most unlikely people. This series we're having is called Outsiders Come to God, but in many cases it could just as easily have been called Outsiders Used by God. And that's certainly the case here, isn't it? They were outsiders, these women, partly because they were women. Being women in the culture of the time made them all outsiders to some degree, given that limited agency that I was just referring to, given the much lesser rights possessed by women than men. The most terrible example, really, is that that we heard in the passage that Pamela read, isn't it? The appalling double standard of Judah, when he was prepared to have Tamar burnt to death for something that he himself had done to her. It's terrible, and it's a sign of the outsider status that women possessed in that society. At least three of the four women are Gentiles. Bathsheba, possibly through marriage, we're not totally sure whether she was uh, an Israelite who married a Gentile or whether she was a Gentile as well. So Bathsheba may, may have been a Gentile by marriage rather than by race. But that made those people at best second-class citizens within Israel. That's shown by David's treatment of both Bathsheba herself and her husband Uriah. They're treated as though they just don't count. 
and they don't have the same rights as full-blown Israelites. And within at least three of them, those women, we see the stain of sexual dishonour. Even, as I say, if that's the result of their exploitation by men. None of them, I repeat, were the sort of people that a respectable Jewish boy would take home to meet his parents. And yet God, who of course is the ultimate parent, God, the father of Abraham, and thus of all of that line, he does welcome them into that family and uses them, what's more, to advance his purpose. They have a vital role, don't they? And that's not despite what happened to them. It's through what happened to them. And that leads to a second thing that I believe these names can teach us, which is this. And this has got really important pastoral application to every single one of us here. Because the point it's making is that God can use and does use the most appalling circumstances to advance his purposes. The Tamar story is absolutely horrible, isn't it? I felt guilty making Pamela read it to us, but thank you. The Bathsheba story with David exploiting her is absolutely horrible. The backstory of Rahab, if we had it, would be equally horrible. And for largely different reasons, the background to the Ruth story is pretty tragic as well, isn't it? All that appalling bereavement. But in each case, God works through the most awful circumstances to advance his purpose of bringing the rescue of the world through Jesus that he always promised to bring. God didn't cause those horrible events to happen. They're the result of a messed up world. But God works through them, doesn't he? We can even say that God redeems them because the truth is that God can always find a way for his powerful love to work through the most awful and terrible circumstances. And that is the huge benefit of having all this unsavoury stuff in the Bible. We sometimes wince at it, we sometimes wish it wasn't there, we sometimes sanitise it. More than once I've heard about the scramblers, our threes to fives, who uh, basically have their Sunday school on a Sunday morning during the 9.30 service. More than once I've heard about them being taught that Rahab ran a bed and breakfast, which is how she met those spies. Now, perhaps that is the way we should translate it for children that age, but it's not quite covering all the bases to say that uh, Rahab ran a bed and breakfast, is it? I'm sure that doesn't happen now that Nathan is in charge of the kids' work. But, you know, it's vital that the unsavoury stuff is there in the Bible. Because otherwise we could think that God just works through the respectable, through the squeaky clean, couldn't we? Which would exclude most of us. The wonderful truth is that God works through not only the most unlikely people, but the most awful and dreadful circumstances to advance his purpose of bringing his love further into the world. And the application of this, well, it's fairly obvious, really, but it still needs spelling out. There's nothing that's happened in your life, terrible things, perhaps, that you've done and deeply regret, maybe terrible things that have happened to you, perhaps terrible things that have been done to you, or perhaps a horrible and confusing mixture of all of that, there's nothing that God cannot work 
his love through at all. When I think of the reasons why I'm a Christian, there are plenty. But if I was going to have to pick one in particular, I think it would be seeing time and again God working his redeeming, restoring, rescuing love through awful situations which don't appear to possess a single positive at all. The experience time after time of seeing God's love break through in the most awful circumstances and in a way where I can only explain this by the miracle of God's grace. Being able to take any situation, however awful, and somehow work his love through it. There are loads of examples I could cite. Perhaps the most powerful example which springs to mind was someone I knew and still know who was faced with the really terrible loss of both of her parents within a short space of time and at a relatively young age, but who, in response to an experience that would have crushed a lot of people beyond repair, was somehow enabled by God to then carve out the most amazing life and has been used by God in the most incredible way. Not despite those experiences, not by God sort of scrubbing them from the record and and basically sort of working independently of them, but through God working through those very terrible experiences. They weren't transformed into anything that was positive at all. They remained an awful experience. But God worked his love through them to use that woman in the most amazing way, as a a channel of God's love with an understanding and an experience and a wisdom that was really forged out of the result of that ordeal suffered at an early life, an earlier part of life than it would have happened to most people. I can think of another example, another woman in a church that I previously belonged to, who came along to that church for many years with her husband and her children. They grew up in the church, a very uh, established uh, part of the church, much respected and liked. And then suddenly one day, around about the age that they were just about to retire, her husband met someone else and promptly left her. It was an enormous shock to everyone at that church. It was the sort of thing that didn't happen in that church. And it was obviously enormously painful for her and her children. But in the years that followed, she did the reverse of retiring. At an age where most people would retire and settle down, she decided God was calling her to go out and work in Africa as a missionary. And I'll always remember her standing up in front of the church and explaining this. And it was really the first time she had to allude to what had happened to her, and it was painful uh, to talk about and embarrassing, really. But she spoke about the fact that this opportunity had emerged because God had used the freedom, very tragic, the path that had led to her being free to do this, but God had led her to this opportunity. Now, God didn't cause those horrible things to happen, but he was able to use them, wasn't he? He was able to use them to advance his purposes. And there will be things for every single one of us, I believe, that are similar to that. There'll be things in our lives that haven't worked out as we hoped they would. There'll be things in our lives that perhaps have been really disastrous and caused us tremendous pain. 
There'll be things in our life where we just wish we could rewind and, and do things differently. Perhaps because we ended up in a situation where we were terribly treated. Perhaps because we did things that we now look back and think that was something that we shouldn't have done or shouldn't have been part of. That's the encouragement of these four stories. The four stories of these women being in this genealogy. Because God meets us in the mess of our lives with all of their disasters the things we've done, the things that have been done to us, that confusing mixture very often of all of those things. God meets us with his saving, restoring love precisely in those situations. And he makes things possible through the miracle of his grace, working through the most terrible situations to advance his covenant purposes. And that's because of a final point that really draws this all together. The appearance of these four women in the family tree points us to the fact that we worship a God who is full of surprises. Now, I haven't said much about Mary yet. She is the fifth uh, woman that occurs. And I think we've got a picture of Mary that can come up now. And there she is. We think about Mary mainly at Christmas time, don't we? And the considerable surprise she felt at being chosen by God to be the mother of Jesus. And it's very significant that when she sung or spoke those words that have been become known as the Magnificat, Mary interpreted what had happened to her in the light of God's dealings with his people Israel. And that reversal that is at the heart of God's working of his purposes. Mary would have known her scriptures, would have known her stories from the Old Testament and the way in which God comes into situations and reverses them, turns them upside down, because he's a God of constant grace. And a big part of that reversal is God surprising us by both the people that he chooses to work through and the circumstances that he's able to use as God does that. A great deal about being a Christian and Christian faith is about us being open to the God of surprises. Worshipping a God that we can't pigeonhole as someone who just works through the uncomplicated and the nice. A God who's actually the very opposite. A God who doesn't wait for us to get our act together and become respectable and our lives to be absolutely tip-top before he can use us. A God who actually is the very opposite of that. A God that will use us in the most broken and painful and disastrous parts of our life because he's a God of redemption and a God who can use those experiences and who can work his amazing grace through them. God's grace isn't just something that forgives us. That's amazing enough. God's grace is something that uses us. God's grace is something that works through the shipwreck that we can very often make of our lives to not only bless us, not only to bless others, but on a bigger scale to advance his purposes for the world. That, I believe, is what we can draw from the presence of these four women within this family tree. Yes, none of them would have been the sort of people that a respectable Jewish boy would have taken home to see mum and dad, most likely. But God's not like that. Because he's the most perfect parent, isn't he? 
He works through the mess because like the most perfect and most understanding parent, he welcomes every single one of us home. We're all welcome home to meet the parent, as it were, because we worship a God of amazing love, a God of amazing grace, a God who is chuffed a bit that every single one of you is here this morning and wants to incorporate you within his family and what's more, work his grace through your life so that more of his transforming, redeeming love could not just bless your life and not just bless the people that you encounter, but can be part of his ongoing purposes for this world going forward. That's the God that we worship. That's the God witnessed to by this incredibly important family tree that kicks off the New Testament and helps to order our thinking so that we can interpret everything that follows as the wonderful fulfillment of God's promises. And in this case this morning, we felt about how that plan incorporates and uses the most unlikely people who are used nonetheless by the God of grace. Let's say a prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning with the experiences of our lives, perhaps very much in the forefront of our mind. Those things that have happened in our lives that often have brought tremendous hardship, perhaps terrible mistakes that we've made or been part of. And we thank you, Lord God, from the bottom of our heart that you are a God of redemption, a God of grace, a God who can work and does work through the frequent mess and shipwreck that we make of our lives. Would you give us hope, Lord God, rather than being full of regret or pain or sadness for terrible things in the past, even if that continues to some degree, would it be allied to a belief in your sovereign grace to work your purposes further and reveal your love further through our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.